0: Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Second Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Very long reading, so try not to fall asleep on me. Okay, so chapter 11. In the spring, at a time when kings go off to war... David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone out to to find out about her. The man said "She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah did not go home, so he sent Uriah. He asked Uriah, sorry. Haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander, Joab, and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the night. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to, to Joab and sent it to Uriah. In it, he wrote, "Put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw, withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die." So while Joab and the city, so while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell moreover. Uriah the hitter died. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler to the rich man, but the rich man was refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die and he must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. That is, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave, you, I gave your master's house to you, and your master's wife, wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? "'You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword "'and took his wife to be your own. "'You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. "'Now therefore, the sword will never depart from your house "'because you despised me "'and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. "'This is what the Lord says, "'Out of your own household, "'I am going to bring calamity on you. "'Before your very eyes, "'I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, "'and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight.' You did, it, you did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. Please welcome Jo as she continues our series on the life of David.
1: Well done, friend. <laughs> that was the challenge of the day. Um, yeah, what a story, hey? Um, I don't know about you, but it can it's quite a tough read, quite a hard read. Um, maybe you don't want to think about it this afternoon. Um, I certainly felt like when I um, got given this part of the sorry, I'm not going to check my phone. I'm just going to keep an eye on the time here. Um, when I got given this passage, um, I thought, oh. Wow. Okay. This is a, <laughs> this is good. <laughs> this is a, <laughs> this is quite a lot going on here. Um, but actually, the overriding sense that as I I had as I read it was just. What, like how sad this David was this incredible man. And this uh, this part of his life story and um, that we get to read today, we're going to walk through it. And one of the things that I love about the Bible is that it, it doesn't deny real life. It doesn't pretend or gloss over anything. This story is in the Bible. And so there is something about it that is alive and is active for us today because the Bible is the word of God. And it says that the word of God is alive. And it is powerful and it can bring truth into our lives. So, we're going to look at it today and then we're going to think about what it tells us of who God is um, and what life and being human is all about. And I just want to start with a few questions. What comes to your mind when you think of power? What words come to your mind when I say that? What do you see? How do you feel? what is your understanding of power? Do you like the idea of power? What does this word stare within you? And since time began, human beings have had a relationship with power, a desire for or a preoccupation with, maybe a misunderstanding of or even a fear of power. We see in the biblical account of creation um, in Genesis that Adam and Eve were tempted with power. They were tempted, if you eat the apple, you will be like God and you will know everything. And since then, the major events in history have been shaped by people who have been keen to either assert or maintain their power. The political landscape has changed as nation has conquered nation. The discovery of the world, to the South Pole or space, often done with a heart for adventure, but also, those adventurers would say, to the desire to be first, <laughs> to put a There to claim those places and to pronounce power in those places. Power has been written about by politicians and poets and songwriters and novelists throughout history. Abraham Lincoln, who was one of the American presidents, said, Nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. I don't know if you have um, read Julian Barnes's latest novel, The Noise of Time, and in it, he just collectively refers to these conversations with the Russian secret police as conversations with power, with a capital P. And every time I read that, um, it just summed up in my mind this image of a dark collective force. But power, the ability to choose and affect change is also an incredible gift and a treasure and when a position of honor and power is used well, people flourish. Good is cultivated and creativity and well-being abound I don't know if you've heard um, of a charity called the Sophie Hayes Foundation. Some of you might be involved there. I'm not sure you may have at least heard of it. I helped to facilitate a course with them um, called the Day 46 Program. And the tagline of this charity is um, Empowering Survivors of Trafficking to Live Hope-Filled Futures. And it's an amazing vision. And it began when Sophie Hayes herself was trafficked from the UK to Italy, then to France, and then to back to Italy again. And She'd met a guy who lured her over there. And she was sold night after night after night for multiple men um, for sex. And she managed to escape after a few years, and she came back to the UK. And after a time of healing and restoration, she actually thought, what can I do with this situation that I have found myself in? How can I empower others to actually not find themselves in this place? And she started this charity and um, both to raise awareness of human trafficking and also to support those who are survivors. Um, of trafficking, and it has just been incredible as I have been involved in this, just to hear stories of women who have experienced this same thing and yet are also now telling stories of um, their plans for the future futures that once, at once seemed impossible and not very likely at all, but now dreams are beginning to emerge and desires are beginning to be spoken of, and healing is beginning to happen. And what an incredible thing to take that position of power and use it to empower others. And there are so many people throughout history who've done this. I've put a few pictures up on the screen. Um, A lot of people you will probably recognize. Um, These people have actually used their position of power throughout history to champion hope, to defeat injustice, to bring the contribution of creativity and wonder to the world. Desmond Tutu worked tirelessly for reconciliation and healing in South Africa. Marie Curie, who was awarded the Nobel Prize, um, as her helps with her discoveries with radiation helped advance medical science. Ambedkar, who's an Indian social reformer. He was one of the principal figures in drafting the Indian Constitution, which outlawed untouchability, as he had experienced that in his own family. Millicent Fawcett, who fought for us women to be able to vote in this country. Shirin Abadi, who is um, an Iranian lawyer who has fought for human rights and was also awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Bill Gates, who's used his position and his um, power to... um, Help in the fight against malaria. Eleanor Roosevelt, who helped draw up the UN Constitution of Human Rights. Helen Keller, who was blind and deaf and also um, realized the position that she was into that could affect social change for those who were also deaf. Harriet Tubman um, was an escaped woman who had been a slave, but she remained on many, returned on many dangerous missions where she helped lead other slaves to freedom. These incredible people who actually have shaped who we are today, who have shaped history for us today, using their power to empower others and to shape the world for the generations to come. And as we hear their stories, it is amazing to be inspired by them and to allow them to think, gosh, what can I do? And I want us to kind of hold that there, hold these pictures of what, how power can be used for good. But at this, just before, as we hold it there, actually draw us back to our hearts and draw us back to the part that power plays in our hearts, the position that power holds in our hearts. And to see what we can learn from this story of David, this part of David's life, about what power looked like in him. So just to recap, because I know it was a very long reading. Um, You did very well if you stayed with it all. Christiana, you did brilliantly. Um, The Israelites were God's chosen people. They'd asked God for a king. So God gave them David. God saw that David was a man after his own heart, it said, and God was, David was actually chosen when he was young, but then he was prepared for many years until finally, eventually he took the the throne. And when he did take the throne, he was known to be a good king. He was someone who showed the Israelites who God was, the way that he led them, showed them the love that God had for his people. And he he wasn't perfect. (laughs) There were some hiccups along the way, David was a human being with um, will and emotion and desire but generally he was known to be a king who was good um, a king who was after God's own heart and wanted to lead in the power and the love of God but the turning point that we find in his story is actually what we read of today and all I picture when I read this story is just the, the clashing and the clanging of David's will and David's desires rubbing up against the desires and the heart of God and just the mess that erupts out of this. and we we read here that it's spring, the kings are at war um, and in the previous chapters they had just been at war with the Ammonites but they'd not completely defeated them which is why we see them besieging the city of Ramah. Um, The Ammonites had retreated there so David's forces were surrounding that city. Now David's army is there but he isn't, he's in Jerusalem and this is when he sees Bathsheba bathing in her courtyard which was common practice in those days and he wants her. So he asks who she is. He finds out she's married, not just to anyone, but to one of his best men, one of his best generals when David had been hiding from the previous king, Saul. Saul had been trying to attack and hunt down and kill David. Uriah was one of the men that protected him and looked after him. Excuse me. So this isn't just any old person. This is one of David's closest pals. This is one of his men. But he sees Bathsheba, he wants her, and he takes her. He summons her to the palace. I don't know what Bathsheba could have done in this situation, but it's very, very unlikely that she could refuse the king. She goes, and when she's there, David sleeps with her, and she goes home, and she's pregnant. She tells David, David concocts the plan. Right, let's bring Uriah back. We'll get him to sleep with Bathsheba. No one will ever know that our little night happened, because then Bathsheba will be pregnant all will be well, thinks he's got it sorted, he can maintain this. So he brings him back, except Uriah is a man of honor. And he says, no, this is not how we do things. When we're at war, we stay in that place. We don't come home and rest and sleep with our wives. So David thinks, okay, I'm gonna have to get him drunk, get beyond this. So David gets him drunk. Uriah still does not go home and sleep with his wife. So then we see that David actually thinks the best thing that he can do in this situation is to get Uriah killed, to send him out to the toughest place of the fighting and get him killed. And I can imagine David must have been thinking, I'm going to have to keep a lid on this. I'm going to have to maintain control of this. I'm going to have to keep power in this situation. I have got to sort this out. It looked like it had worked. That's what happened. Uriah was sent to the front line and he was killed from an arrow that came from the city wall. And David probably thought, oh, that's sorted. I can look like the good guy. I'll now take Bathsheba as my wife. I'll look after her. I'll be her redeemer husband. I'll bring her into my family because Uriah was one of my trusted men. I will look after his wife. He's probably thought, we've got away with it. (laughs) We've just managed it. Except there's a verse there that said, but David did what? Um, displeased the Lord. David did what displeased the Lord. And so God sent Nathan. Nathan was a prophet. He was someone with a message from God. And Nathan loved David, and David loved and respected Nathan. Nathan comes with a story. And he tells the story of this rich man who had loads and loads of lambs and this and the poor man who had one. And the, this one meant everything to the poor man. And a traveler came by one day and he asked for a lamb. The rich man didn't take any of his own. He took the one from the poor man. And when David heard this story, you can imagine, he just thought, is he in my kingdom? Like he probably would have played judge at some time as he, not played judge, but being judge at some point as he was king. And he says to Nathan, who... Who is this man? How dare this man do this? This man deserves death. Like, we must find him. And Nathan says to David, it's you. It's you. This is what you've done. This is what you've done. This is who you have become. And it seems like in that moment, David is suddenly aware of all that has previously happened the recognition of how his power and his position had become so twisted in his own heart that he hadn't even realized who he had become and what he had done and the choices that he had made and the consequences of them and he weeps he sees the devastation and the destruction he sees the look at Bathsheba the desire to have her He sees his plan to cover it all up to look like he's still in control. He sees the death of Uriah and 13 others, the confusion of his men. Why would we be sent so close to the walls? This is not a good game plan. He sees it all, all of a sudden, and he cries out, I have sinned against the Lord. And as David says this, Nathan speaks this incredible sentence, God has taken away your sin. God has taken away your sin. And you probably notice that this sentence, as Nathan says this to David, is also spoken in the midst of some deeply painful words that would have been really hard for David to hear. Nathan tells David that the consequences of your choices will always be in your family. Your family will always be, um, there will be marked by betrayal and death and infighting. And I don't know about you, but when I read them, I thought, why couldn't God just take the consequences as well as the sin? Why did it have to work like this? why, Why couldn't it have been different? And honestly... I don't fully know the answer to that question, (laughs) and I'm not sure we will know. Maybe we will get more understanding as we go, and as we see it in the light of all that Jesus has given and done for us, we also can read it slightly differently, but there are some things that we might not know the answers to until Jesus comes again. (laughs) It says we see in part and then we'll see in full. And until then, there's this sense that we can wrestle with the Bible, that we can consider it and allow our place to be and allow ourselves to be in these places of the hard questions. But what God does say to David is, even though you will live with these consequences, I have healed your heart. I have taken away your sin. You are no longer separated from me. So why are we reading this passage today? Why are we reading this story today? Why is this? What can we learn from this? What can we discover of who God is and who we are from this? Well, the first thing that we're going to do as we walk through this is just consider At the beginning how did things go so horribly wrong (laughs) how did they even end up here you might have seen the clue at the beginning of the passage and it says it was spring when the kings were at war David was in Jerusalem David was king the kings were at war David was in Jerusalem David was out of place David had stepped outside of who he was made to be and he was he'd been appointed by king of israel by god he was god's man god said to him i gave you everything <laughs> i was not keeping anything from you i gave you it all everything you asked for and as you would saw after my heart i had given you so much David was God's man leading Israel with God. But the moment that he stepped out of this friendship, this relationship with God, the moment he stepped out of his position as king, his power was open to being misused and abused and misdirected. Now, I don't imagine that David sent Joab off to war with this plan of, oh, while you're away, I'm going to sleep with Bathsheba, and then I'm going to actually have Uriah killed. I don't think he began those two weeks or however long it was with that plan. There's nothing to suggest that at all. But what we do see is a man who has a position of authority and service, step back and send others in his place, a king who seems to forget who he is, a man who seems to begin to believe that he can do all of this by himself. He can make the decisions on what this looks like. He can take the charge. He can work anything out. He didn't need God anymore. He would make the rules of what it meant to be king of Israel. And this was the first sign that something wasn't right, that his power was vulnerable to corruption. The power that he was given by God was open to ruining him because he had taken God, the source and the giver of the power, out of the picture. That's when he spotted Bathsheba. That's when the one look happened. When he was on his rooftop and he saw her bathing in the courtyard. You can just imagine, oh, there she is. Oh, 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 I'll I'll just have another look. (laughs) Another look and then there's a question, who is she? Who does she belong to? And then he hears, still doesn't stop him. Oh, okay. Okay, go and get her. And she's brought to the palace. I don't know why or what intention he had. Maybe it was just to see her. Maybe he knew all along what he wanted to get up to that night. But whatever it was, one look then led to all these disastrous consequences and so I wonder where we might put ourselves in David's story. <clears throat> it says in, um, oh, sorry, I'm just actually going to read a quote from N.T. Wright, who says, Called to responsibility within cre- and authority within creation, humans have turned their vocation upside down, giving worship and allegiance to forces and powers within creation itself. Human beings worshipping their creator were the intended key to the proper flourishing of the world. Those who do this are formed by this activity to become the generous, humble stewards through whom God's creative and sustaining love is let loose into the world. That's how things were meant to be. N.T. Wright, in his, it, it, that's found in a book called The Day the Revolution Began, which is a brilliant book to read um, if you are interested in reading that. But there, N.T. Wright speaks of something that I see reflected in the story of David, this story of humanity, that the, the greatest loss, he says, is that we've lost our place, that we have given over our worship to the powers rather than to the one who created everything. David was appointed the king to help the Israelites understand who God is. was everything went wrong when he began to worship power instead of the one who gave him power and so as we consider this we can ask ourselves the question how is our heart how is our worship what is in our heart what is taking the biggest place in our heart because I am sure that this room is filled with incredible people who will go on to do amazing things and already are Who could be in that line of of pictures that we saw at the very beginning of people who change history for generations to come. Who have dreams and desires and a vision of what the world could look like if only power was used for good. And yet sometimes we just have to take, I would say, every day... (laughs) If anything, we need to consider our hearts as we go to these places, as we seek to be these people who will reclaim our place, who will step back into places, human beings who bear the image of God to bring his rule and his power to the earth. That we ask the question, we have space as the church to, to consider the health of our hearts, to know our hearts, to trust our hearts, to honor our hearts, to guard them. It says in Proverbs, guard your heart for out of it flows all life. And I think if there would be one thing that I could say to us as we just consider these dreams and visions to the future is guard our hearts. Guard our hearts for out of them flow the direction of our life know the state that our hearts are in. We might not have gone to the extremes that we see here in David's life, but we can still ask ourselves the question, are there situations where I have misused the power that I have had Do I like to keep control in conversations? (laughs) Have I amassed lots of money? Am I using it well? Can I place myself in David's story somewhere? Is something stealing or about to steal my full wholehearted worship of Jesus? And if it is, what does that mean to me? What do I care about that? Have I taken a first look at something And I know that I could begin to be on a road in this direction. Do I want to follow that road? (laughs) Or do I actually just want to leave it at one look and turn my gaze somewhere else? And the amazing thing as we do this is that we can ask God to help us. It says in Psalm 139, David asked God to show him his heart. Search me and know my heart, David said. Because sometimes it's hard for us to work out what's in there. It can feel a bit like a muddle or we're not quite sure how to actually see what is going on in there. But it's a great prayer to pray. Search me, God, and let me know what is going on in my heart. We might not feel like everything is quite right. And so we can ask him. It's a prayer that I pray um, regularly. <laughs> God, would you show me what's in my heart? And I, I prayed this last Friday again. Um... And I was really surprised, actually, by a phrase that came to my mind as I just thought, oh, I had no idea the position that that person in that situation had taken in my heart. And for about four or five days, I just wrestled with this, like, God, is this you? This this phrase came to mind as I prayed, is this you? And if this is you, what does this mean? What does this mean for the state that my heart is in? What does this mean for the position that you are holding in my heart? And I said earlier this morning that we were actually on holiday Um, on the south coast so this is where I was processing all of this Um, and I was walking along the cliff top one night while the others were watching the bake off and I actually thought oh it's so lovely to be up here and uh, it's so hazy and beautiful I didn't realise I was actually in the middle of a chemical haze (laughs) I don't know if you heard about it in the news (laughs) so so there you go it added to the mystery (laughs) (laughs) You know, this sense of like, oh, what's in my heart? (laughs) Um, But yeah, but actually, as God showed me what was in my heart, it actually led me to realize oh my goodness I do not want that person in that situation to take that place and I knew that I had to give it to him and I it it seemed good I felt like I wanted good for this person in this situation and yet I also knew that I had decided what I wanted that good to look like (laughs) that I still wanted to have some power and some control in that situation that I would tell God what this how this could all work out and I knew that I just had to give that to him and surrender to him. And sometimes that happens in a process. It might be that as you heard Lars speaking about the steps course, you think, oh, do you know what? There is some things in my heart that I would love to just process with people and begin to leave behind these ways. We also have the pastoral care team. We have the prayer team here at the end of the service. We have the men's recovery course. Sometimes these things can just happen in a moment as we give them over to God. And sometimes we need to walk with others on the journey of just breaking some of the habits and the the patterns that have taken hold of our hearts. We see where it went wrong. We see David's heart. So, how does God respond? And there's just four things that I want to briefly um, just speak to us um, on as we just consider what we can learn from the power of God from this story. We've just seen how God, David handled his power. And this is where we also see the power of God. And the first thing is that the power of God is holy. God's power is pure. It is set apart. God's power is not like any other earthly power. It is not simply a power that enables us to do good. God's power cleanses and restores our hearts. It brings healing and freedom. And God hates any abuse of power. He hates it. He hates any abuse of power. It is not what he made humanity for. And he saw the abuse of power that David was actually handling. And he saw David's heart. He didn't just look at what David did. He actually saw his heart. He knew his heart. He saw where things had shifted. This was his David. This was his man, his king. And so the holiness of God's power couldn't leave David in that place. And so he sent Nathan in. And he didn't send Nathan in to shout at David and to yell at him and to make him feel guilty and just to stand there and shout at him from a distance. He sent Nathan in with a story. He sent Nathan in to allow David to see his own heart. And it says in Malachi that the power of God is like a refiner's fire, that it is always about making us more and more like God, about bringing out the true and purest version of ourselves. The power of God can be trusted because it's holy. It can never be corrupted. (laughs) It will never be misused by God. The power of God helps us to grieve, When David looked honestly at what had happened, the pain that he'd caused and the state of his heart, he grieved. I have sinned against God, he said, and it seems like a simple sentence, but in Psalm 51, we actually see the depth of his grief. If you read it all, it's just pouring out his heart. And he says, my sacrifice, God, is a broken spirit, a broken heart. This is what I bring to you, and I know that you won't despise it. And the amazing thing is, as we look at our hearts and ask God to show us what is there, it might be that we need to make some space to grieve. (laughs) It might be that we just make these, we can use David's words. (laughs) We can use his words that he's written out in this poetry for us. We can grieve where we have allowed power in our own lives to cause pain in the lives of others. We grieve for where we have wanted power so we could be in control. We grieve where power might have become twisted in our lives, where we have tried to take God's own place. And it might be that we also need to make some space to grieve where we have suffered pain and loss at the hands of others. And it wouldn't surprise me in a room like this that there would be stories of where this has happened, of where we have been hurt by others, who have somehow had a hold of power over our lives, whether in friendships or even just in conversations or moments at work or whatever it might be. But God invites us to grieve them because our hearts matter. And as we grieve, he brings us to healing because the things that we don't grieve in our life don't disappear, they remain. (laughs) And the seeds of what has happened begin to grow and the Bible teaches us the wisdom and the freedom of grieving. And it invites us into the honesty and the space to do this. The Bible's full of grief, lamentations, Psalms, the prophets, Jesus, weeping. And we're part of a world that needs to grieve. (laughs) And I think as the church, we need to help people grieve, to just be in that space of honesty with our hearts, to come alongside those who are grieving. We need to grieve the abuse of power across the earth that causes war and death and famine that we will see on our news. The abuse of power that has caused so much devastation. Grieving brings healing because it also brings Saves us becoming numb to that. This is all just how the world is. We actually are awakened again to a different possibility. The third thing is the power of God is gracious. The nature and character of God is that He's gracious, He's for our good. He won't let decisions we've made <laughs> yesterday or three years ago or five years ago actually stand in the way of us becoming our best selves. It says in John 3, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Nathan came to walk with David. There is always, always grace. And the last thing is the power of God is sustained in surrender. And this psalm, this lament in Psalm 51 walks us to this beautiful place of surrender. When David says, create in me a clean heart, God. Have my whole heart. David was asking God, or God doesn't ever just give us a new heart, but he actually reorders our hearts and restores our hearts. And this is how we will sustain this life of power surrendered to him. I wonder if the band would like to come back. If you are wondering what power we receive as we surrender, we see it in Jesus just as he was at the cross. And this surrender was so deep for him as he was surrendering to the will of the Father. He said, God, if there's any other way, can we take it? And then he says, but not my will, but yours be done. And he says, when he died and come back to life, And he meets with his friends and he says to them, I'm going to physically leave this earth, but I'm going to leave my power for you. And this is the power that he has given us. Henry Nguyen says, God's power is not the power that controls, dictates and commands. It is the power that heals, reconciles and unites. It is the power of the spirit. When Jesus appeared, people wanted to be close to him and touch him because power came out of him. It is this power of the divine spirit that Jesus wants to give us. The spirit empowers us and allows us to be healing presences. When we are filled with that spirit, we cannot be other than healers. In 2 Timothy, it says, we receive power to be fearless. We don't receive a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. We receive power to be reconcilers. We receive power to forgive, where we can't do this in our own strength. We receive power to be compassionate and kind and humble. We receive power to stay faithful and be committed to the dream that God has given us. And it says in 2 Corinthians 4, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power is of God and not from ourselves. And as we just sing and worship and return our eyes to him this evening, if you want to just take this space to consider what this life of surrender and allowing our hearts to be open to God could look like, you're so free to that. Or it might be that you just want to take this moment to ask God, would you show me what's in my heart? Would you help me understand my heart so I can see you here? And it might be as we sing, you just want to come and say, oh God, I want to surrender again that I re- might receive your power and not live by my own power. And honestly, I I can't think of anything better for us to do (laughs) as we worship than to give our hearts to him and receive all that he has for us
0: thank you for listening for more information or for further podcasts and downloads please visit christchurchlondon.org